You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey, welcome everybody to episode 133 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer. Oops, I said Pimp Cron. Pim Cron Warhammer Podcast and. We are brought to you by GameMat.eu for pre-painted terrain and beautiful gaming mats of all sizes, the traditional sizes, small sizes, 3x3s, double-sided, all that, as well as the stupid new GW uh, dimensions. And also, you know who else supports this show? All of my gorgeous Patreon patrons, which I'm obligated to have sex with at least once per year. So um, if you guys, please, all my Patreon patrons, please sign up on the form on Patreon um, that we will have intercourse. It will be gentle, it will be loving, and you will come away smiling. And you'll be like, you know what? That, that was worth the Patreon subscription. So if I haven't made it weird enough, what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about the endless spells of the Daughters of Cain. Do I want them? Do I not want them? Guess what? There's a whole segment dedicated to that. Then we're also talking about a spooky Tesseract mailbox where Clint writes in and tells me about a haunted house he used to live in, which is kind of nuts. And <laughs> and uh, I tell him about one of the, I guess, spookiest stories that I've ever experienced that happened to me when I was younger. So uh, if, if you're into that sort of thing, take a look at that segment. And then finally, we also talk about, hey, is Kickstarter killing gaming? And I swear to you, I swear this was a topic I've already covered on this podcast before. I just swear it. But I looked through the list of podcast episodes twice, and I can't find that I've ever covered this. So I'm going to cover it again if I have already covered it. I have no evidence that I have, but I, I would have bet $10 that I've already covered this topic. But whatever. So basically, it's the impact of kickstarting on wargaming and miniatures and all of that, and how much it's hurt GW. What have I been up to? Well, I had a glorious tie um, this week at the club, and the odds were very much in my not in my favor, and I was very proud to pull that off. So I played one of probably the most competitive gamer in our normal group, and uh, he played his Dark Angels, and he brought 15 Terminators in a 1,500-point game, and a um, bunch of other stuff. And I was bl- playing my Chaos Space Marines book. And not only you'd be like, oh, Chaos Space Marines, they haven't been updated yet. Well, guess what? Just James did not bring his version 2.0 because I never asked him to because I forgot. And I only have 1.0. So I didn't even have the updated Chaos Space Marines book. So not only do my Marines have one wound where his have two... And my Terminators have two wounds where his have three. And not only does he get the transmutation bullshit, whatever it is, on all of his models practically. And I didn't have all of my spells. And I didn't... (laughs) um, Like, for instance, I was playing with the old book. So I took the Endless... Whatever, the Slanesh spell, one of my Demon Princes knew. And it gave him a six-up feel no pain, which was marginally helpful. And then I played Just James again today with that with the version 2 book and realized, oh, now it's a 5-up Feel No Pain. Well, that would have been helpful in my last game. But anyway, we ended up tying... Um, we were only doing one point and we weren't doing secondaries. So we did we tied 9-9, nine to nine, but that would have been, what, 45-45, to 45, something like that. And um, it was very fun, a very, very hard game. But we ended up tying at the very end, and I was quite proud of that because 
a version 1.0 8th edition codex tying with one of the new hotness codexes. You know what? That's something to be proud of. And um, it was a fun game. Then I had just James over today to play the game that I just mentioned. And he played his Space Marines because he never gets to play his Space Marines because a lot of people in our club play Space Marines and he always feels a little guilty about it. So he doesn't ever bring his Marines. So he brought his Marines today and I beat him by one point. And we were playing an Epic War Planner, my um, Pempcron Epic War Planner book. And uh, you can find that on Amazon, so go check that out. It's also at the end of my articles. But um, it's got a ton of narrative mechanics and fun mechanics to add to uh, your favorite 28mm fantasy or sci-fi wargaming miniatures game game. Anyway... And uh, it's got all sorts of campaign ideas and all that. Well, we played one of the narrative ideas that they... Um, the, how do I say this? All of the objectives in the very beginning of the game, you choose that all the objectives are one of three types. Either technology, uh, personnel, or... I forget what the other one was. And when you choose that, then each one has three different types. So we chose... Uh, oh, the other one's knowledge. So we chose knowledge, and our thing was we were trying to find out where this psyker was living. And this person, uh, we met in the middle of the battlefield, obviously, and we're going to fight over it. And each one of the objectives, each one of the objectives was one of the three types of knowledge. There was geographical, there was arcane, and then there was, uh, um, I forgot the other one. Anyway, the point is there's three different types. So in the beginning of the game... For each one of the objectives on the board, you can nominate one of your units to be a specialist unit, and you choose what type of the three choices they are. And whenever you go to cap objectives, any any unit that tries to cap an objective can only cap an objective on a six up. Now, if you, it's one of your specialist units, then you cap it on a four up, and if it's the proper specialist unit... Um, then you capture it on a two-up. And what I mean proper is, in the very beginning of the game, you roll a D3 for each of the objectives, and it tells you what type it is. So we had two arcane ones, one geographical one, and one of whatever the other one was. We had four objectives. And uh, so you really wanted to put your specialists on the right objective in order to score points. And it was very, very fun. Um, I beat him seven to six. It was very, very close. And um, once again, at least I had the 2.0 um, cast base marines this time and it was a very fun game and there was actually a reason I had my master possession have the arcane specialty which was cool he was looking after you know any artifacts or whatever he can find where this person lived and um, it makes it very interesting and of course you would say oh well I'm just going to shoot a specialist first well all your specialist units essentially get the lookout sir rule the old one where if there's a unit closer to them than your specialist unit then you have to target them essentially and uh, it's it's was super fun. James came in and he was like, you know, I'm sick of all these normal missions. Let's play something narrative. And what's cool is right out of the book, it gave us reasons for it. We chose knowledge and then we're like, oh, OK, well, why do we need knowledge? Uh, we're trying to find this psyker. Cool. And then we just went from there. And and it was really cool because it really felt like my master of possessions uh knew something about Ar Arcana and he was coming out. And then it turns out you know, one of my objectives was Arcana, so I had to go send him over specifically with a better chance of scoring objectives. It was very fun. So uh, you can choose a unit for that, or you can choose a 
character for that or whatever you want. Uh, both my tech squads had ge- geographical, and I really cannot think of the third category. But um, my demon, my other demon prince had the other, so it was very fun. Uh, I've also been working on some more missions for the Brutality Narrative Module, which will be coming out in May or June, and that's been a ton of fun. Um, one of them is that you have to infiltrate a castle and um, save something, retrieve something, whatever, whether it be an asset or people or whatever, and there's three different ways you can do that, and each one of them has their own exploration chart where you can run into enemies and whatnot as you do it. You can go through the sewers, you can scale the wall outside, it's it's pretty cool. Um and what else? Oh, there's another one that's really cool that I just put in the book. That's mission. The one I just explained was mission number four. This is mission number three in that narrative book. And mission number three is essentially, in a nutshell, this town is being attacked by a, a gang. And the five leaders can't agree on how to deal with it. So you go in there and you say, look, trust me, I'll help you. And narratively, you can have whatever reasons for helping them you want. Um, and you also don't even have to uh, have to help them at all. Each one of the leaders has a specialty, and they will help you in the end fight against the bad guys, because the bad guys have arguably 50% more points than you will. So this is going to be an uphill battle, and you really need to train the populace however you can, you know, with range training or melee training or whatever. It's really cool. And... Um, so that's I just finished that. I'll start playtesting with that, but it looks pretty good right out of the gate. And um, I'm about half done the castle infiltration mission, which is also really cool. And um, I'm excited about that. And I always try to leave it open for if you want to play like an evil warband, go ahead and play an evil warband. You don't have to play a good guy. Um, and I even tell you in the book, like if you want to fend off these gangsters and then turn around and enslave the entire town then you've got to fight one more mission versus the town, and they will have whatever benefits you trained them with for that final battle. So if you train them to have range training and their snipers up in the trees, well, guess what? Now you're the target of those snipers rather than the enemy. And it's pretty cool. Um, even if you don't want to help them, you could just uh, steal from each one of the leaders if, if you can do that. And um, you just go in there, talk to each leader, and you could potentially steal from them. And if you get caught twice, you right out of town but you get to keep the items you stole so i try to keep it very narratively open so whether or not you are a you know necromancer that hates everybody or you're like a johnny do-gooder it doesn't matter you can do it however you want so that's really fun all right well that is enough rambling um i'm slowly working towards and i'm still not concrete that i'm doing it but i'm slowly working towards a youtube channel and i think i'm gonna do it pretty positive I'm just debating on whether or not it's going to be worth it because of all my existing workload and and whatnot. So we'll see if I can somehow streamline that the way I have the podcast, where it's pretty easy to fit in my life. Um, If I can't, then oh well, but we'll see. Anyway, please enjoy the show, and thanks so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Tell your friends or join the Patreon or do whatever you got to do. Later. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Well, for this week of the Tesseract Mailbox, we have a spooky story for you. We have a letter from Clint, and he writes, PIM, in all caps, P-I-M, PIMCRON, how's it going? Would you mind doing another story time? I find your storytelling to be fun. I have really enjoyed the two or three times you shared funny or crazy stories, and wanted to see if you had anything for this topic. Creepy or scary memories of the paranormal? (laughs) That's a little off topic, but we'll see. 
He says, I used to actually live in a haunted house. No joke. This story is only tangentially tangentially related to wargaming because the spirits would often knock my models off the shelf in my bedroom. You'll probably laugh at this, but it's true. I have a sh- I had a shelf above my head that held my harlequins when not used, and I would sometimes wake in the middle of the night when one of them hit me in the face. I'm sure you will all scoff, and I'm sure you'll have a million questions, but here are the answers I've answered a hundred times to my friends. No, we don't get earthquakes here. No, there are no train tracks nearby. I don't own a cat, I don't sleep with a fan on, and I didn't punch the wall in my sleep. The models were kept at least three or four inches from the edge of the shelf. I would also occasionally have dishes fall out of the cabinet as well, and one night we heard people talking next door when that wasn't being rented. We lived in a large old house split into two different apartments. Oh, another thing, they liked to... uh, Another thing they like to do was move my shoes. I always put my shoes in the same place when I removed them to come inside. They would often end up behind the door, which I would never put them there, and my boyfriend swore he didn't move them. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. We moved about five years ago, but it was freaky. Clint. Well, to be honest with you, Clint, I would have moved much longer, much sooner than five years. I'm not dealing with any of that nonsense. Uh, I am very, very much on the fence about the paranormal. Um, I don't know that I don't believe it. I don't know that I do believe it. It's just kind of one of those things that I don't really have an opinion on. In my younger years, I did wholeheartedly believe in it. Um, but nowadays, uh, I don't know. So, um, but that's very interesting though. Uh, that's actually the one thing I was going to ask you is, did you own a cat? But you already explained that you do not own a cat. So, because you know, cats would probably jump up on the ledge and knock stuff off or whatever in your sleep. But waking up to be hit in the face by Harlequins is, uh, that, that's an interesting scenario. And one, I don't think I would allow to happen twice. (laughs) I think I would move long before that happened for a second time. And, uh, moving the shoes is also pretty weird. And especially the people talking next door when you knew it was vacant. That is really creepy. I don't like that one little bit. Um, it's a shame. I would love to know what you thought they were saying, if you could actually make out what they were actually saying, or, you know, because it could have been grifters, it could have been homeless people, it could have been anything, but that's, uh, even if it was homeless people or grifters in the uh, vacant apartment next door, that's also pretty creepy. So, um, do I have any stories of the paranormal? Well, um, not really. I do have one really, really creepy gut feeling story, so I can tell you that. And it was not paranormal, really, but it was still something out of a creepy story or something like that. Um, Let me try to phrase this as concisely as possible. I used to work at a marina when I was a teenager. And let's say it is a U-shaped marina. So the water is in the center of the U. And the store, the like the marina store and all that stuff, is on the top left of the U. And then the dumpsters and everything were on the middle of the right side of the U. So in order to go to the dumpsters at night when you take out all the trash, we work the night shift from like 1 to 8 or 1 to 9. And um, you'd have to, at the end of the day, you'd have to take out all the trash. There was probably 20 or 30 trash cans around the facility. And as dock hands, we would have to empty all that trash, change the bags, and bring them all the way down the bottom of the U in the parking lot and over to the dumpsters. So it was just me that night that was doing the, the 
dumpster throwing, and I, I don't know why it was just me. Usually it was several of us, but whatever. And I got um, it was dark, and I was um, you know, throwing away all the dumpsters and all that, all the all the bags into the dumpster. And on my way back, I was at. Remember, I'm about um, I would have to go down the bottom of the U in order to go back to the store. So as I go to the bottom of the U, I look towards um. It's, if the U, if this capital U is in a box, I am in the bottom center of the box at the bottom of the U, and I see this woman, the silhouette of this woman, in the bottom left-hand corner of that box. In other words, in the parking lot. And she was walking on from the street, and I'm the only one out here. It's like 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And I couldn't make her out because she was probably 75 yards away, 50 yards, something like that, and it was dark out. But the, the minute that I saw her, I got this gut punch feeling and I was like, ooh, I don't want to be near her. And she was kind of staggering. Um, she it's, It was weird. It was very, very weird. And normally, you know, you don't get feelings like that from people from a distance like that. But just the way her head was cocked sideways and it really did look like something out of a horror movie. You see this basically a silhouette of this woman far away and she's like staggering and one foot's inward and her head's cocked sideways and it just really freaked me out. So I said, you know what? Um, there was like a little secret way at the bottom of that U. There was a building at the bottom of the U and you could walk through the parking lot or you could cut inside and like there was this little teeny boardwalk walkway like two feet wide. And I was freaked out enough that I was like, you know what? I don't want to be near her and she was coming my way at the bottom of this U. So I, uh, I decided, you know what? I don't want to meet this woman in the middle of the parking lot at night. And that's going to make me sound like a coward, but I'm telling you right now, if you saw the silhouette, you'd be like, Ooh, uh, that doesn't seem right. She's on drugs or she's possessed or she's something. So I made the shortcut and I, I, you know, made it right back to the store and finished what I was doing that night. And it worked for a little while longer or whatnot. We were doing whatever to close for the night. Well, my brother and I and my wife actually all worked there at the same time. And uh, she wasn't my wife when we were teenagers. Shut up. And my brother and I walked into the marina store and the place was like dead quiet. And we quickly realized why. And um, <laughs> we had two women, uh, Michelle and Jen, that worked in the store behind the counter. And they were standing behind the counter and they were looking very, very awkward at the moment. And in front of them was standing this woman and she was, war she dressed kind of like an African garb. She had like a, a wrap on her head and she had this like thin sundress sort of, um, something like that. It looked like, um, African garb is what it looked like. And, um, to the untrained eye. And I walked in and this woman is standing there in front of Michelle and Jen on, in front of the counter, but her head is tipped up and she's looking at like where the ceiling meets the wall. And nobody's saying a word. She's just standing right in front of them, staring blankly. And they are just standing there like, uh, hmm, okay. And later on, uh, me, so Brooks and I, um, my brother, we stayed in the store because we didn't know, like, is she on drugs or, or what the deal is? And, um... Uh, we stayed in the store for a while just for security in case she was going to like freak out and try to eat someone's face or something if she was on drugs. And eventually after like five minutes, she, she never did lower her head. She's always staring like at the corner of the room and she just slowly turns still with her head cocked backwards 
and she slowly walks out the back of the store and she disappears out into the parking lot. And uh, my brother and I, once, you know, she was gone, we asked Jen and Michelle and we're like, dude, what was up with her? Is she on drugs or what? And they're like, yeah, we kept trying to talk to her and she didn't say anything. She was perfectly quiet. She had her head cocked backwards like she was looking up and she just stood in front of us. And it was quite, it was quite creepy. I'm, I'm assuming it was probably drug related. She did not act drunk at all, but um, she did slightly sway as she stood there. And it was something like out of a zombie movie. It was very, very freaking creepy. And when I was younger, I believed more in the paranormal stuff. So I was thinking like, is she possessed or something? But uh, more likely it was probably drugs. And, uh, but yeah, she was slowly just, just barely swaying, staring, staring up at the ceiling and the wall and uh it being nighttime and me being all alone like i said i couldn't make out how she was dressed or who she was or whatever from that far of a distance but the minute i saw her staggering through the parking lot i was like i do not want to be alone <laughs> with whoever this is so that is probably the closest to the paranormal uh i mean it's not paranormal like i said but it's just it was freaking creepy is what it was um, I don't really, I can't say that I have any paranormal stories, um, but you ask for a story, and that's the only real story I have that is legitimately creepy. So, um, I guess that's it. Thank you so much for writing in, Clint, and uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. You guys can reach me at pimpcron at gmail.com or facebook.com slash pimpcron with no P, and I will see you in the next segment. Want that, or want that not? This week on the Want That or Want That Not, we're covering the Endless Spells Daughters of Cain. So, there's three Endless Spells, they're $35, and here's what I think about them. I will go one after the other. The first one is a giant gauntleted fist holding a heart, and it's bleeding all over it. It's bleeding from the fingers, it's bleeding down the arm, and all of that, and it's being held up by, like, pooling blood. I really like this one. I really do. Um, could be the paint job, I don't know. If I'm not mistaken, some of the blood looks a little cartoony, but that just might be their paint job, I don't know. You know, the paint job can affect it quite a bit, but honestly, I think it's a pretty cool-looking thing. Um, I realize that two of these are actually endless spells, and then a priestess can summon one of these. And I don't know which one is which. I don't play Daughters of Cain. But as far as this fist one, it looks pretty cool. I like the um, symbology of it. Just like the um, Blades of Corn uh, skull you know, the, with pour, blood pouring out of it. I like this big fist holding a heart. Definitely like it. Then we've got a bunch of swords. And to be honest with you, I feel like this one is an absolute mess. We've got four different swords, and it takes you a while. As soon as you look at it, you're like, what the hell am I looking at? There's four different swords flying about in midair, being held by invisible powers. And each one of them is like, you know when you're drawing someone swinging something and you put the lines behind it? It's essentially each one of the swords has that behind them, except that it's blood. It's made of blood. So each swipe behind the swords are made of blood. And the blood, once again, is looking kind of cartoony. It's looking... Uh, the swords look kind of thick. Like, the blades look thick. And I just... This one really doesn't do much for me. 
Um, I don't like it, and the formation looks very messy. If it was more uniform and it was all like all of them spinning around or something like that, but one is swiping down like it's someone's kneecap, one is swiping up seemingly towards the person that would be casting it, and then another one is swiping up towards someone's crotch, and then another one's swiping up towards like someone's kneecap. And uh, I don't like it because three of these are facing what you would consider forward, and one of them looks like it's striking at you, which I have no idea what they're trying to do here. And just a picture of it looks very messy. It does not look that great. And essentially, the blood is so thick. And I understand this is the structure of the model, so they got to be a little thick. But the blood looks like you've cut a uh, hot wax, and you've got just hot wax trails for each sword. And I just don't like it. I don't like the concept at all. Thirdly, we have a giant snake, and it's got some holes in it, and it looks like the giant snake is made from solidified blood. The snake is not complete. Near its head, the head of the snake is just a snake head, and then its neck is intact. And then from about an inch or two behind the head onwards... The snake is only the top of the snake. You know, it's not like a fully, like a tube. It's just the top of the tube and it's dripping blood. Now that's actually a pretty cool concept, I think. The idea of a giant snake, I mean, I don't know where they could ever go wrong with that. So if they had just done a giant snake, I'd be like, oh, okay. I mean, it's just whatever. But being that they've taken some really interesting creative liberties with this and they've just done the top of it, it's almost as if there's an invisible snake here and someone poured blood over it. And the blood is running down the sides of it and the top is all coated in blood, but the underside's not. And it's really, really cool effect. I Believe it or not, the snake is my very favorite endless spell in this set. The swords are garbage. I hate them. And the fist is pretty cool, um, but the, the snake is totally pulled off. It's very well done. So, would I... Hold on, let me take a look at another another way that these swords... Yeah, I'm looking at another side of these swords, another direction, and it's no better. The three are facing one way, and the other one's facing another way? I, I hate it. I, I truly do hate it. I do not like those swords one little bit. But this snake is baller. <laughs> this snake is really nice. And the fist is also pretty darn cool. So... $35 for Endless Spells. Were, were Endless Spells always $35? I feel like they were $30 before. I don't know. Maybe I'm just going crazy. But $35 for these Endless Spells, meaning that you're paying like uh, $11 and something per Endless Spell. And to be one that I love, one that is okay, and one that I hate, this is not a huge rating for me. That's not real high. Um, if for some reason I ever wanted it for Brutality, that giant snake... I think I I probably would uh, I would like use it for a monster or something. I probably would actually spend the thirty five dollars just to get the snake. It's a pretty darn cool model, and I could I'm sure I could use the um, the fist and the heart as like a locust or something like a train feature. That would be pretty cool. But um, so honestly, yeah, I think that's a want that for me, and not because I play Daughters of Cain because I don't. And not because I love every single one of the models in this set, but 35 bucks for a giant-ass blood snake, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So it's definitely a want-that-for-me, I think. And uh, I think you should like it, too. If you don't, 
then I guess we disagree. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimp Cron. Hey everybody, it is Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and today I will be exploring the religious movement known as Kickstarter, and I may show you how kickstarting new games may lead to killing your current ones. Everybody by now has heard of the supposed um, pickle that GW is in because of 3D printing, mostly. And um, as of right now, it hasn't caught up to them, but it's increasing all the time. Every single 3D printer purchased is basically putting more and more pressure on GW. And I'm not here to argue that that's not true. I'm also not here to argue that GW is the best company ever and has a sparkling track record of listening to its customers, etc. I wouldn't even go as far as to say that GW makes eye contact with you as they sodomize you with their giant throbbing inflated prices. But if you look at the bigger picture, I believe you see a much more dire situation for big gaming companies like GW, and that's not due to 3D printing necessarily, that's due to Kickstarter. Kickstarter is great, but it has brought on the gaming apocalypse. It's safe to assume that if you are listening to me right now, and you know who I am and you know the topic of this podcast, that you like miniature gaming. And obviously, loving gaming means your children's college fund is secretly being funneled into an offshore Swiss bank account to pay for that new Emperor Class Titan that you've had your eye on. Um, Side note, don't worry, you don't tell my spouse, I won't tell your spouse. I think it's also safe to assume that at least some of you aren't filthy, filthy rich, like my friend Bliggity Blam Steve. So, (laughs) So my cerebral processors indicate to me that since you only have limited earthling currency at your disposal, any money that you spend kickstarting yet another miniatures game is taking away from the money you could be spending on your current hobbies. Well, guess what? For many of us, GW products are our current hobby. With over $1 billion, let me, hold on, maybe you didn't hear that right. $1 billion raised successfully backing gaming Kickstarters on the Kickstarter website. I'm sorry, just just one more time. $1 billion. I'd say it's safe to say that at least some of that came out of GW's potential sales. Now, obviously, quote-unquote games include video games and board games and card games, etc. It's not all miniature wargaming, but that doesn't mean that it's not taken away from potential GW sales either. Kickstarter is like a hobby Russian roulette mixed with a Mexican standoff. Bear with me. So let's do a little mental experiment here. You do like I've done, and you drop a couple hundred bucks or even a grand back in Kickstarter projects. Trust me, Bliggity Blam Steve has told me how much he's spent in a year on Kickstarter, and I am not exaggerating. In in one little bit, Bliggity Blam Steve has spent some of your gross annual income on Kickstarter, and that is no exaggeration. It is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but anyway, you've, you've spent some money on that just like I have, right? And are you playing them now that they've been delivered after the six months, 12 months that you waited? Have they been set on your table? Are they collecting dust? Have you rolled any dice with these models? How many people in your gaming club play even one of the games that you've kickstarted? One person, two people, none? From experience, I drop a bunch of cash on something 
I learn to play it. I teach people to play it. We all enjoy it, but nobody buys into it. And I end up playing a game of it maybe once every three to six months. That happened to me with uh, Dead Zone. That happened to me with Wild West Exodus. That's happened to me with um, All Quiet on the Martian Front, which was a complete bust. Um, so that's great. You know, I spend all this money. I teach people. I learn how to do it and all that. And I get to play a game at best once every couple months. Meanwhile, I could have spent that money on an entire army for my current hobby, if you're talking about $1,000. Now, personally, I have never spent $1,000 on Kickstarter. Um, probably in all of these years, I've probably spent, I would say, $300 in the last decade on Kickstarter because I uh, I got burned a couple times. Specifically, actually, All Quiet on the Martian Front was a complete bust. They actually like went bankrupt, and I don't know if I've ever discussed this on the um, the podcast or not, but... There was a fantasy game that was not very popular. It was very niche and very, um, like, cult classic sort of thing. And it was called Fantaside. And it was made by this company, and they decided to get the rights to, like, tripods and stuff. I don't. It wasn't really War, War of the Worlds, but it was basically War of the Worlds. And uh, it was called All Quiet on the Martian Front. And they had this huge Kickstarter and all of that. And really, failed Kickstarters and you getting screwed is not exactly my topic here, but this is just a side. Um, they ended up putting their prices too low and they underestimated everything. So by the time that the Kickstarter actually was like fulfilled, they didn't have enough money to fulfill everything. So for instance, me and Bliggity Blam Steve went in on it and he bought this giant ass land ship that was like, two feet long and it was all resin and metal and it was massive and it was supposed to be really cool. Um, I was going to be, I think I was the humans and he was going to be the Martians. I mean, they had like Americans, they had British, they had uh, Russians, they had a couple different factions of humans and then they had the tripods and basically one of you had to be tripods, one of you had to be humans. And uh, he spent so much money on this Kickstarter and he ended up, I ended up getting most of my stuff, like 75% of my stuff, because I didn't spend a whole lot of money on it. And all my stuff was like the baseline game and all that. And he ended up getting like half of the stuff he paid for. And then they couldn't even do anything about it because the company immediately folded. They lost all their money and went bankrupt. So that was, man, that was super fun. Um, just a little anecdote about Kickstarters. So anyway, uh, back to what I was saying. So. The whole Kickstarter situation is currently like the real estate market about, what, 15 years ago. Everybody is throwing all kinds of money around in hopes of making a good investment. And my assumption is that it's eventually going to pop. But when you think about it, kickstarting a project is really an investment because you are shelling out money up front in hopes that the game will be worth something to other people when it ships. And that idea works whether you plan on selling your kickstarted loot or just finding players to play the game. Either way, it's an investment that has to be worth something to other people to play it later on. Otherwise, you're not going to find any opponents, nobody else is going to buy into it, etc. Ultimately, it's a Russian roulette because it's a huge gamble if you will even find players to play with. And it's a Mexican standoff because everyone's conversation will eventually turn into this. Um, Hey man, do you play Ultimate Battles CCG? Oh no, I never backed that one, dude. Um, do you play Deep Dungeon Demigods? Nah, but I did fund a game like that. Ever heard of Diamond Digger's Dungeon? 
No, but I brought my army of elvish fancy dandies to play a game of Battle Wars Fight with you. Oh, I never got into Battle Wars Fight. Happen to bring your orphan slugfest cards? Sold them to Kickstart Fantasy Ogre Dick Chess. Did you play? Almost funded Ogre Dick Chess. Yeah, almost did. But I did bring my magic minority checkers. Um, you have your team class clash zone? Oh, no, that's a no for me, dog. I'm sorry about that. Um, hey, do you have a uh, public school maritime wartime face-off? Nah, dude, guys, mighty maximum conquest minis? Nope. Superheat overload chargers? No. Weird galaxy dice marbles? Ah, I didn't back that either. Dynamic card moon simulator? Hoogity blick blork? The OMF GWTF GTO CCG? Ah, uh, afraid not. Money phrase master bash? Holy demon carrot wishing? Man, seems like we've got $20,000 in stuff, but none of the same. Want to play 40k magic or hero clicks? Nah, they all went out of business. That's basically the conversation we're going to be having. <laughs> Woo! Uh, so now I know it seems as though I am championing the status quo and defending giant gaming corporations, but I'm really not. I think a certain level of indie ingenuity is a great thing for any market, but what we see here is like a nuclear explosion of new games, miniatures, and companies. I'm interested to see just what is left after the smoke clears. The winners and losers have all been chosen, and there are entire mountains made of unused miniatures of kickstarted games that went nowhere after shipping. So I know that GW seems to be acting rather odd right now with new additions and rules and pricings, etc., but could it be that they're doing the equivalent of hiding in their bathtub until this whole thing blows over? I don't know. Especially given that uh, their production speed has been sped up extremely fast in the last couple years. Um, it does make you wonder if they're trying to constantly dangle keys in front of us and go, Hey, hey, see, 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 hey, 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 hey and keep our attention, essentially. Um, so, what do you think about that? Email me, write me, and tell me what your opinion of the whole Kickstarter fiasco is, and uh, not to mention the failed Kickstarters where you can get screwed, and not to mention that this whole Kickstarter thing is the whole reason why I started Brutality, is because I had all these different miniatures and no game to play them in, so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to make my own system where you can use any of these miniatures, and then it makes perfect sense, and then I can Kickstarter whatever models look cool, and I, I don't have to play their game, you know? And uh, that's end up, I mean, the, my Dead Zone miniatures have came into Brutality quite a bit. I've got several warbands of those, and my Wild West Exodus I use a lot in Brutality, which is nice. Um, I don't actually, I never actually had any fantasied models. I had the rulebook and all, but uh, I never actually bought any of their models. And all quite on the Martian front, I've kind of waited because I thought it would be cool to do a warband of like Lilliputians because all quite on the Martian front was like eight millimeter or 15 millimeter. It was quite small. I think it was 15 millimeter. And um, so, you know, I mean, that, that you can make that work, make squads of people instead of just one miniature for the three hit points. And uh, things like that. But I would love to hear what you guys actually think. Do you think Kickstarter is going to be the end of the world for all these companies in the end? Or is it not going to be? I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. Although Kickstarter has gone for a long time. What's Kickstarter been around at least like a decade? And even though they've raised a billion dollars, it's uh, the bubble hasn't popped yet. 
which is a little surprising to me. So I guess we'll see exactly what happens with the um, the whole bubble of that. And maybe there ever, never is any bubble. Maybe it just peters out and whatnot. But it just makes you think. It really does make you wonder. Because a billion dollars could have been spent with a an existing hobby or an existing property. And it wasn't. It was all put into these board games and things like that. So... I thank you so much for listening, and thank you for GameAt.eu for supporting the show, and thank you to my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons, and you know who you are. Smooches! I'll see you next week.